my friend, this is Joe Bakmotsky. Welcome to this podcast where we, we talk about healing from trauma. And today I'm super excited to be talking to Sean Cuthbert, clinical psychologist who specializes in PTSD and healing from trauma. He is also an expert on internal family systems, which is an evidence-based type of therapy that can really help us in healing from trauma. But it's also like a unique way of seeing yourself and your internal world. And today we're going to really dive dive in and find out what it is, like how it works and why it might be helpful in us leading a, a happier and more fulfilled life. And, uh, you know, Sean, in this space of, of healing from trauma, it's vital to not only have a brilliant mind, which... <laughs> I'm sure you have, <laughs> but also a huge heart, which I know you have. So, um, so I'm just honored to have you on this podcast. Um, Sean, thank you for being here and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a um, unexpected uh, honor and privilege. Awesome. <laughs> thank you, Sean. I want to start first to ask you about your definition of trauma given that everything that you have seen, um, everything that you know, everything that you've experienced today in working with it, how would you define trauma today? Yeah. Um, something I probably go back to a bit is um, uh, I, I heard this definition from uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who's a, um, I'm sure you know who he is, um, as a um He's a GP who worked or a medical doctor who worked for a long time in the poorer areas of, um, I think it was in Vancouver. Uh, he worked with the people with quite extreme drug addiction for multiple decades and, and now he um, writes books and he has his own um, uh, therapeutic approach, which is called Compassionate Inquiry. Um, and he says, what he says, which I really like, is that trauma isn't um, just the thing that happens to us. It's actually um, the thing or the process that happens inside of us. But, but probably most importantly, in the absence of like a compassionate witness to our experience, and um, and I think probably in a, in and I think a lot of probably trauma therapy is is moving in this direction. Like when what IFS Internal Family Systems does is it actually. Um, either excavates or um, helps the client find that compassionate witness to their experience. But in most um, probably traditional therapies, the therapist would be that compassionate witness to their experience. But what, what happens in IFS is we actually find that in, inside the client in, in what IFS calls the self. So they actually get to be their own compassionate witness to the experience of um, the parts of them that have been um, uh, stuck in traumatic events or experienced traumatic events. So, um, so that that's probably how I see it. That's that's probably the one the definition that resonates with me. Yeah, that's so powerful, Sean. Because uh, so many times we experience this trauma alone, and we end up feeling alone, which is yeah. uh, which is incredibly hurtful. So, um, you know. Speaking about IFS, uh, how did it become a part of your life? Um, that's uh, like most things. It's it's not a linear answer. So um, I obviously I'm a 
trained as a clinical psychologist. So I went through um, my master's training and I can't remember there being probably too much said about trauma. Like there, there was never like any, wasn't spoken about to, to any significant degree. Um, I think people probably casually um, referenced it a, a few times, but I, I don't remember any significant training about it. Um, and and then my first my first job out of university, um, I worked at an agency that dealt with um, uh, young people with um, coexisting um, uh, drug problems and mental health problems, um, but what I actually got was people with drug problems um, and these just horrific histories of trauma, like just the the, uh, the worst possible circumstances um, that they'd, they'd survived. Um, and I, I was very fortunate that um, at that time the person who was the, the senior um, uh, therapist in, in the organisation uh, you know, put a lot of effort into um, getting us all a lot of professional, really good professional development around trauma. And um, we were all shipped off to a training where we saw Janina Fisher, who is a very well-known trauma therapist. Um, She's, um, her primary modality is is a a, um, body-based trauma therapy called sensory motor psychotherapy. And I, do you know who she is? Have you ever heard of her? I've got a book of by her, but I haven't read it yet. <laughs> okay, all right. You should read it. It's, um, is it the um, healing the parts of the traumatized self or something like that? I can't remember the I title. I think it's of it. in the other room. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the the book is like the book's really good, but I, I remember seeing her, and it's probably the first time I've, I've ever like like kind of gone ah <laughs> now I now I kind of get it, um, and I remember at the end of. Um, it was two or three days of just listening to Janina Fisher talk. She like, and there was probably like 500 people there and I probably wasn't um, quite aware of, of like how, um, how influential she was um, in the trauma world. She got like a 10 minute standing ovation. It was like she was a rock star. <laughs> um, and this is like a, you know, this is like a, a 70 year old woman who, you know, been a trauma therapist for decades, but she, she really, um, uh, she really had like a spark about her that that really resonated with me. Um, and after that, I went and learned. So, so then I kind of went off on my little little journey to learn various um, approaches that um, that really focused on on treating trauma. So the first one I landed at was um, EMDR, which I know you've probably experienced a little bit of EMDR in in, in your healing journey. Um, so that was that was the first one I landed at, um, and I think around that time, that was probably around the time Bessel van der Kolk's "The Body Keeps the Score" came out, and and so these these approaches, which were probably not that well known, suddenly became really well known. So um, I probably did EMDR for a year or two, and I thought EMDR was the answer. Um, but like anything, um, you you learn that it has its limitations and, and its problems. Um, and then after EMDR, I went off and actually learned sensory motor psychotherapy, the um, the the uh, modality that Janina Fish is well known for. And 
Um, and then I think I probably, I'd already had some sense that that internal family systems was was in this kind of group of modalities that um, that were in the body keeps the score and were known to be like um, effective in the treatment of trauma. But but I remember reading about it just thinking this this is just weird, like all this talk <laughs> about the self and um, you know groups of parts like managers and firefighters and exiles and and the whole process you go through to um to reprocess the trauma I just thought, no one's gonna no one's gonna like buy this if I start doing this with them this just sounds really really <laughs> strange anyway so I completely dismissed it and um because I, I have skeptical parts um <laughs> and which you know I've probably served me pretty well over time um and then I remember I was talking to like another psychologist who I knew and respected um and she had mentioned that that IFS was was like really like a thing that 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 people should learn. And I was like, all right, if, if this person is saying it's something, I should probably listen to her. Um, and that was probably around the time that because before, before like 2017, 2018, there was no um, official IFS trainings in Australia, so they just didn't exist. They were, you had to go to America to um, to actually get trained because they were all in person then. So there were probably, I don't know, at that point there was probably like 10 people in Australia who were actually trained in IFS. Um, and so nobody really knew about it. It was still this kind of underground thing. And I tried to get into the first training that was held in Australia in 2018. I think I just missed out. So I got into the second one and I turned up and I'd, I'd paid a, a lot of money to do this 14-day thing. And I showed up and there's already a lot of people there who were converts, like really had swallowed the swallowed the Kool-Aid. <laughs> um, and I was, my, I was still in my sceptical parts and I was just like, God, all these, all these people are really you know, they're all really crazy. This is really weird. Um, and anyway, I, I remember I sidled up to someone on the first day and I was like, God, this all just seems like bullshit to me. <laughs> and so I really blended blended with my sceptical parts. And then I think on day two, when you start to actually, because most of the training is either being the therapist or or being the client and having the therapy. And I remember having the experience of having the therapy and it was just the most like profound thing that I've ever experienced just um, in terms of, you know, therapies and I've, you know, trained in a few. So I've had a bunch of these things, experienced them firsthand and it just blew me away. I was just like, this is incredible. Like the fact that there's all this stuff inside of you that, um, you know, very few other therapies actually um, get close to even touching into. So I had my own experience of it. And um and so I was completely sold. Um <laughs> and you know then I I did level one and then I went on and you know so if level one is like 14 days, level two was like 10 days. I did level three during the pandemic. Um so like I've done all the I've done all the training. Um you know it, it's it's just I just think it's like the best thing ever. 
<laughs> that's a very long answer to what you asked, but um, but that's it's it's quite a it's quite a journey. Yeah, and it was quite a journey from mm. from thinking this is crazy to yeah. going to a place where you go, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> I love hearing that show. That's that's um, that's especially because that's that's mirrors you know the journeys we go through in life, right? Mm. We we learn about what's what's right for you. Um, so tell me about the internal family systems like model. Like, mm. how does it work in a nutshell? Like, how does yeah. it all fit in? Yeah. Um, well, it's a bit like um, I often liken it to to like um, talking about swimming before you get in the water, which is why it's <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to it's hard to actually like talk about it. But I'll I'll, I'll do my best at giving you like a rough overview. Um, so, <clears throat> I suppose in in IFS, what we you know a lot of people would. Because it's it's like a parts model, so um, and there's a few psychotherapies that are, you know, uh, parts models like um, ego state therapy, which I know you know about, schema therapy to a lesser degree. Um, I think there's an older style parts model called transactional analysis. Um, so like these are all parts based models. So I mean, the the models created by um, uh, Dr. Richard Schwartz, who's a um, psychologist, family therapist in um, America. I think he lives in Boston. And what happened was um, he was trained as an external family therapist working with um, external families, but then he um, decided to to experiment with, I think he originally was working with clients with uh, young people with quite extreme eating disorders, and he started to just listen to um, their language about what was happening inside of them, um, and and so the model is just developed, unlike other models, which are you know developed through a lot of research and questionnaires and and um, drilling down of concepts. The model was just developed from him, and then this cohort of therapists that he um, gathered around him just listening to their clients and listening how their internal worlds are constructed um, and turns out like the, the the way that those clients internal worlds are constructed can actually be applied to um, basically everyone so there's three categories of um, parts that we try and get in contact with an IFS there's we, we differentiate between protective parts which are parts that we kind of live in from our day-to-day lives which are called managers which are proactive parts that kind of run our lives like um your manager part made sure that you were probably in this zoom room on time joe <laughs> um my managers weren't as diligent because I was ten minutes late. <laughs> um, <laughs> so those are those are protective parts that you know help us get out of bed at the right time of you know when we need to in the morning, be at work on time, fulfill our responsibilities, you know, pay our bills, and mortgages on time, do the admin of life. So you know they're very proactive in making sure that all that is um, in place. And then the other category of um, protective parts are called firefighters, which are more reactive parts. So if we think about firefighters in terms of um, things that come in um, when some distress or pain has been excavated, like, um, you know, drug and alcohol use is probably a a key firefighter behaviour. Screens are a big one for everyone, looking at their phone, um, you know, binge-watching Netflix, all that stuff. Never done that. Um, 
Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> completely, completely alien to me as well. Um, uh, um, trying to think of some other firefighters. Gambling is another one. Um, eating is a big one for people. Uh, you know, like people talk about comfort food or whatever. That's a firefighter that's um, trying to give comfort to the system that's in a little bit of distress. So they're, they're protective parts that um, generally come up for people. And beneath that kind of top layer of parts is um, is what we call exiles, which are um, essentially parts of often quite young parts of people's systems that are holding um, the traumas of the stuff that happened to them in childhood. So, you know, attachment wounds, um, you know, abuse, neglect of, of various sorts. Um, so, so that the, and probably the thing that differentiates uh, IFS from other parts models is this concept of the self that at the core of all of us, we have this, um, self, which is characterized by what in IFS we call the eight C's. Um, which are C words that, that I'll talk about in a minute. But like this self is in everyone, like even in the most, you know, traumatized um, uh, system, this self still exists. It's just sometimes covered up by, by more protective parts um, and it takes a bit longer to find it. And so what the therapy essentially is, is, um, you know, it's a relationship building exercise between the self of the person and and these parts and what we're always trying to do is bring these things you know the crux of the therapy is the, is building the self to part relationship like really you know elevating the self to be the leader of the system rather than some of these parts that have probably um been thrust into extreme roles by the traumas that happened to the child parts so the whole thing is about relationships internal relationships and you know what happens and this is the practical step. What happens in in the external world when you really bring the internal system back into harmony is that people's external relationships have to change. You can't change one part of a system without other um, parts of the system being kind of um, impacted. So people's external relationships just get a get a bunch easier when their internal world is actually more settled. And it makes so much sense, Sean, because uh, that it's all about relationships and it's about finding ways to live with yourself, I guess, mm. <laughs> you know? And uh, I really love this idea of um, the self that is is always protected uh, and pure and that can bring other parts into play. But how do you even know what sort of parts... Uh, exist inside of you how, how does yeah. how do you find out about that um well uh you might be aware there's there's a book that richard schwartz has written which has been quite popular which is called no bad parts um weirdly enough so so basically um have you have you read that at all yeah good um so all parts um you know were really probably unlike some therapies, like all parts are welcome uh, into the into the therapeutic space. Like some parts don't get demonized and pathologized, like anything that shows up is welcome. It's, it's only really when a part has stepped into an extreme role in the person's life that, that you know, and it, it's probably pretty obvious to, to them and to um, 
even when they're just in the initial conversation with me, what parts are actually probably like most prominent for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So a common one, which I'm sure uh, a lot of people can um, relate to is like an inner critic. Um, You might have one of them, Joe. Um, (laughs) No, 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 no. no. (laughs) So um, like an inner critic will will show up um, as I'm just thinking about how this this stuff usually shows up for people. Someone will come in and they're critical of, of... like a behaviour that they're doing or essentially what, what's happening is a critic will show up to, would have dragged the person to therapy and they would be critical of another part of them, which is, um, you know, often like a part that's depressed or a part that's super anxious or, you know, a part that's using a substance or a part that's eating too much. And, you know, you'll ask the person, for example, I'd say, how do you feel towards the part of you that's that's um, that's drinking too much? And they'll say, oh, I fucking hate it. Um, and I'll be like, oh, okay, so you've got another part, you've got a critical part that's um, that's actually critical of this drinking part. Um, and then I'll be like, well, is it critical of anything else? And then it'll reel off five other parts that it hates in there as well. So, you know, the, the thing that's potentially brought the person to therapy is maybe the drinking, but ultimately it's that isn't really the, the problem the problem is is the the part that's so critical of the drinking because it thinks it's trying it thinks that, that um being critical of the drinking will somehow shift that behavior but all it really does is it usually sends the behavior underground and then it pops up um when the the critic isn't watching or the critic's preoccupied or the circumstances call for the the drinking to become prominent like in a social situation so so like then you would you would know that there's um at least two parts to work with there there's the critical part that hates the drinking and probably a bunch of other things the person is doing but also there's a part that that uses alcohol to um to manage probably more vulnerable feelings so th- these things are just evident when you're just talking to people and and as a I mean, as as a therapist, my job is kind of to be this this more colon IFS like a parts detector to actually just listen carefully to what they're saying, just to pick the parts out, um, and then you know, hopefully over time, the the client themselves can be their own parts detector to know to notice what parts are, are active in whatever situation they're in. Um, but that that gives us a place to start in terms of you know what what parts to kind of target to work with and and you know in this situation um we probably either start with the critic we might start with the drinking part depending on how um how problematic it is um in terms of the person's functioning so that's that's usually where we start it's fascinating sean how you talk about parts that have been pulled into doing these more um, critical tasks that are outside of what they're supposed to be doing and yep. from what I from what I'm hearing you say is, you know, you want to be try to bring them more aligned to their original purpose or mm. whatever the work out the original job description, mm. whatever that yep. might be. So how does that work? Is that is that some kind of a negotiation process? How yeah. do you resolve these differences? There is there is a little bit of negotiation in there. So. Um, so oftentimes, um, and some of this is going to sound a bit conceptually weird, but it makes perfect sense to people when they, they go inside and do work uh, with the parts. Oftentimes you will 
introduce the, let's say, the critic, for example. Oftentimes you'll introduce the critic to the person's self. You'll be like, oh, you know, ask the critic critic if it knows who you are. And and the the client will ask the critic, and the critic will be like, no, nah, no idea. So <laughs> it has no it has no idea that there is actually a self in there who can actually listen and support the critical part. And then you know we we do this process um, which we call updating, where essentially we show the uh, the critical part um, who you know how old the person is, like all the internal and external resources that they have access to, um, show them around their life to see, you know, actually see how how good things are. And and oftentimes, like the, the in this case, like the critic would be stunned. It's just like it is shocked because it still thinks you're five living in your parents' house, you know, um, wherever it learned to actually um you know, criticize you from. So it's it's actually stunned that it's decades later and you're now um you're now now an adult who can um actually handle things without needing to to get go into its extreme critical role. Yeah, absolutely. And um I, I love the idea of it's you know um you learn essentially about yourself and there's there's an element of leadership right i think it's the, mm. the, the yeah. self leadership part, part yeah we talk about self leadership in in ifs which is this this idea that the self can actually be the one that like listens to everyone in there rather than these you know um in this case the critic like having the loudest voice um and it, and often you know, in this process of updating, you'll ask the critic how it feels about being so critical of of the person's other parts, and the critic will be like, "Oh, I hate it. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. This sucks." Because um, you know, all it's doing is standing in there just yelling at a bunch of other parts, which is, you know, think about how that would be just as an external person if you just stood on a street corner just screaming at people all the time. It'd be exhausting. So to actually listen to what it's like for the critic to do its thing um, and it'll tell you it's tired of it. You know, I reckon 99 times out of 100 it'll say some version of I'm sick of it, I'm tired of it, I don't want to do it anymore. And then then you can actually start to invite it into like another role or, or give it some other options. Like most critics want to, when you get down to it, they actually want to just support the person in a way that isn't... Um, like so onerous and energy sapping, like they, they really just want to be like a cheerleader for the person. Um, but they've never actually, like either that's never been role modelled appropriately in their external life, that's never been, they've never actually had the opportunity to do that. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes that takes a bit of repetition, um, but but ultimately I don't think I've ever met a critic that wanted to keep criticising the person in the way that... Um, that there probably has been as it's moved into its extreme role. And I've, I've worked in a bunch of systems, Joe. So th- <laughs> this, stu- this stuff is, you know, this stuff is pretty universal. Yeah, that's fascinating. And so how, what are some of the common transitions from parts that have been pulled into these extreme roles? I know you just mentioned, uh, obviously, the, the in the critic. What are some mm-hmm. of the other ones that, that are where they, um, I think you used the word, you know, upgrade or update mm. into or you know 
transfer into, I guess, you know, a different part of yourself, doing something that is that is hopefully helpful and supportive. Yeah. Um, well, it's very, um, I suppose the difference between this and maybe other models is like it's it's very unique to the person. Like we'll, we'll always, like we ask the part what he wants to do mm. and it'll tell us. Like if, if people get really good at listening, so, um, you know, so these ideas don't come from from us. Like all we do, like all the therapist does is is guide the person to their own answers. I mean, a lot of times parts will just say like, you know, particularly these protective parts, they'll just say, oh, I just want to like have a rest. And they'll just, they'll wander off to the side and just lay down and just, just let the, the, um, the client just deal with whatever the, the the parts that it's been protecting, like younger parts that are holding the the trauma. So um, sometimes they don't actually want to do anything. Like sometimes they just want to go and pull up a, a hammock and just <laughs> um, and just lay down. You know, other times they'll move into like you know, much like I just gave that example with the critic. I can think of someone who um, had a part that was. Uh, like a people pleaser, like really like managed um, external people by by being very, you know, friendly and lovely and all that stuff, but from a like a parts-led place rather than a self-led place. And um, that person invited the part into a different role and I think actually it, instead of looking outwards to please people, it actually turned towards the person and just wanted wanted to please please the self. So, you know, that's, that's a, a weird, very specific example. I mean, that was the whole thing that went on with that. But, but like, these things, like, they're, they're really specific to the client and, and all we do is just, you know, invite the client to listen to the part. And the part always, like, it always knows what it wants. So we just listen to it. Love that. So it can be anything. Love it. I love the idea also um, that we kind of have all the answers inside yeah. of us already. It's kind of... A yep. matter of bringing them out. Uh, yeah, that's 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 super powerful. I mean, it's it's really the the you know in many ways like a large part of the the skill set of the IFS therapist is actually trusting the client because I suppose you know harking back to my clinical training, I wasn't taught to trust the client. I was taught to taught to see people as like broken and dysfunctional or their behavior is pathological. I wasn't actually taught to trust people. That's just just something that I've been fortunate enough to learn through all these therapies that I've um, I've studied over time. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah, that's that seems like a totally different approach. It is. To working with clients. Imagine if we just walked around trusting each other all day, Joe. <laughs> no, can't do that. <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll totally would be living in a completely different world, Sean. Yeah, no, we would. Yeah. And speaking of that, like this is what makes me think about internal family systems, um, and I think it's such a you know compassionate, but also um, kind of humane part of, of being kind to yourself because it's it kind of takes off the pressure of being just one way i'm just this one thing and here is how yeah. i am but there's kind of different sides of you and i think that's feels right to me because it kind of takes off the pressure and allows to explore more so do you think sean that we can take that we could take this idea of internal family systems kind of beyond therapy 
mm. and into our daily life like how does, does oh yeah well i mean without without a doubt i mean i think the um the vision of of the ifs institute which you know i don't work for but i, I certainly am um associated with it just just through um uh you know being a certified ifs therapist and ifs consultant is is to actually take take this take this model outside the therapy room because i mean i, I mean I, i certainly don't think of it as just a like a uh therapeutic modality i mean i think of it as as more of a way to not only understand myself but understand um everyone else uh and that's certainly you know and i, I know for for clients when they when they can do that take it outside of just their own experience and actually start to see extreme parts of other people um like people become less like external people become less less kind of unpredictable like <laughs> like everything everything else just becomes a bit clearer like this person acted this way at work you know like they were in a, an extreme manager role because you know they're obviously protecting something that um is probably a bit more vulnerable inside of them. So you actually just can can see other people a bit clearer and also um you know that that allows people to be a bit more compassionate to external people's experience which then allows you to stay you know somewhat connected to them despite whatever um you know extreme thing they're doing around you or in front of you or you can you know choose to leave if 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 it doesn't feel safe for you but like it just allows you to understand that like the world's not a i mean everyone's not a mystery people aren't mysteries i mean there are mysteries but like in some ways people are highly predictable exactly and it uh, and it's it's it, that's what i guess healing is all about isn't it that we we come to accept not only ourselves um mm. but also accept the world around us and where mm. we're going um yeah I love hearing i mean it certainly you know for me i mean i know that it certainly changed um you know a lot of my external relationships with people i remember after i um after i did level one and i came back and i was back in the workplace and someone someone who i had an okay relationship with but but wasn't uh super close with came up to me and said what's happened what's going on <laughs> and i'm like what do you mean she said you're entirely different she said you're much much softer than you used to be <laughs> and i was like <laughs> And like I, I just laughed because I we had a conversation which is probably the most connected conversation me and this other person had ever had um and and it was you know I told her about what I what I'd been doing and everything and and she said whatever this is this this seems pretty good <laughs> keep doing it <laughs> <laughs> so um it's interesting that you get that feedback from someone who didn't even didn't even know what I'd where I'd gone and what I'd done but but they they clearly noticed that something had shifted. Yeah, that's fascinating because it's it means that you have you've changed quite significantly, Sean. Mm, yeah. Well, Definitely. Wow. Um I just love this idea of internal landscape. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Sean. And uh listen, if somebody wanted to find out more about what you do and maybe working with you, what would they do? Mm. Um, I can just go to my website, which is um, seancuthbert.com.au. Um, I'm pretty busy, so I'm not encouraging people to um, contact me for therapy necessarily, but um, 
I mean, if people want to contact me, I can always, and I don't have space, I can always put them on to um, other um, IFS therapists. There's, there's probably been, I reckon there's been eight or nine level one trainings in Australia in the last five years, so they don't happen that routinely. So there's probably, I don't know, 250 to 300 IFS trained therapists in Australia now, which is um, which doesn't seem that much because everyone, um, like everyone's really busy. Like it's very rare that you hear someone who is trained in IFS is not actually um, struggling to keep up with the demand just because like people often come to me from um, from like, you know, probably more traditional therapies that have kind of scratched the surface but um, haven't gone as deep as they want to. Um, if, if, if people go to um, the IFS Institute um, website, which is the American website, and there's a find a find a therapist um, or find a practitioner tab that they can click on and and drop down box Australia, and there's probably there's forty to fifty therapists um, of various levels of training um, uh, listed there. Like that's another option for people to find a therapist. They can do a Google. I'll probably come up first, but there'll be a bunch of other people who um, who uh, who you know, have, have websites. I mean, the, the, the therapy is really exploded in popularity in the last, um, in the last five years. And, and you can't even, like people are waiting years to get into these trainings now. It's ridiculous. Like they, they don't even work on a waitlist system. They work on a lottery system. So you essentially have to go into a lottery now to get into these trainings. Um, which, I mean, it makes me grateful that I was on the, the, you know, the front foot with, um, with signing up, but, but like, um, I, you know, I supervise a bunch of psychologists who want to get into the training, but can't just because like they're, they're oversubscribed, not only in Australia, but worldwide. And, and the Institute's really been, um, you know, kind of caught on the hop because like they were just, you know, chugging along, just doing their trainings and suddenly everyone wanted to get trained in this thing. Um, so, um, super popular, but, you know, therapy, like I said to you, when we had a, a chat initially, um, evidence-based, um, really, really effective goes, goes into really, you know, deep stuff about yourself. Um, you kind of had a sense of, and some of you didn't even know, um, and, and it's just really, just really gentle and beautiful. Awesome. Sean, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your time. Um, yep. And also, just thank you for what you're doing, Moral. Yeah, well. I appreciate that, Joe. And thanks for what you're doing. This podcast is, is you know, really helpful to people. Thank you for being here, my friend. I want to deeply honor your life, your story, and where you are today. And it's my hope that this show, it, it serves you in some way, because I believe that we are all just capable of so much more than we think sometimes. And, and, and this incredible potential of what we're capable of and leading a life that you're proud of, that you're excited by, what I tell myself, so tell my loved ones. That's what I'm here, just sharing this, this with you, right? And I have this vision. I have this vision for bringing together survivors. Survivors of trauma, of difficult experience, of difficult circumstance, whether that's going through sexual abuse, domestic violence, living with illness, 
going through war, bring together people who've been through it or are living through difficult times, the loved ones, so we can come together to give, give our best in our lives, in, in, with our loved ones, in our communities, in our work, to grow, to grow towards our dreams, towards our hopes, towards our desires, and to heal. To heal from difficulties and struggle, and making sense of what's right for you today. That's why I'm here. That's why I wrote my book, Finding Hope in Times of Uncertainty, a guide to thriving in the challenging world of today. And if this vision, just if it speaks to you in some way, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear from you if you could email me at joe at powertobehappy.com. That's J-O-E at powertobehappy.com. Whatever you want to say, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know what you think. And thank you again so much for being here today. I'll speak to you next time.